wallowed in a needle-spawned world, addicted to dope and the crazy life, and yet there I was in Berkeley for my first poetry reading. I was 18 with a bullet, as they say. Earlier, I had flown on a plane for the first time. Sure, I've survived half a dozen gun assaults, cops knocking me around, ODs, blades to my neck and jail cells, homelessness and dank streets and beatdowns and body of brawls. But flying? That scared me to death. I sat there in a crowded cafe, not knowing what to expect. Poetry? I never heard this before. Oh, I had written lines, vignettes, images, fears, thoughts. I didn't know they were poems. I had no idea what a poem was. First up on the mic was Jose Montoya, with Chicano prayers of old pachucos and strained loves and guitar solos and Indian hands and cornflower. Then David Henderson took the stage, gleaning urban black streets, racist stairs, Black Panther fury, and Southern cooking. Finally, Pedro Pietri came up, Neo-Rican wordmeister, flashing at radio's experiences with poems located in phone booths and real-life wisdoms that made us laugh and shake our heads. I had never heard words spoken this way, more music than talk, more fevered shapes than sentences, more Che and Malcolm than Shakespeare. These poems came for me, lassoed my throat, demanded my life savings, taking me for a sunset ride. These poems were graffiti scrawls along the alleys and trash-strewn tunnels of my body, the metaphoric methadone for the heroin hurling through my bloodstream, the lifeline I already had inside and didn't know. These poems were pool sticks, darkened gangways, a swirl of sunrise after the graveyard shift, a blood-black creeling behind torn curtains, a child shrieking and nobody coming to help. They were a woman sent after a night of lovemaking, a sweet touch of hand to face, cascades of hair on a pillow, a moan during an elongated kiss. These poems were shadowed and tense, startled doubt, sorrows without grief, the moon without sky, unknown melodies, the falling inside that happens when you push razor onto wrist. They came for me as I sank into my suicide while fidgeting in a chair, inching under the skin as I wondered why I even came. Jose, David, and Pedro, I was never the same after this. They came for me, and I've never let go. They came for me, and I've perspired poems ever since. They came for me, and all my addictions, my sorry-ass lies, my falling mass, my pissed-off wives, neglected children, angry friends, and back-to-back -back failures could never, ever take them away. Welcome to Poets Cafe. Our guest, Luis Rodriguez, was appointed Poet Laureate of Los Angeles by Mayor Garcetti in 2014. His poetry book, My Nature is Hunger, won the 2005 Patterson Book Award. His 1993 memoir, Always Running, La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A., with close to half a million copies sold, became one of L.A.'s most checked out in libraries and one of the most stolen. He has over a dozen other books in poetry, children's literature, fiction, and nonfiction, and has been published in hundreds of journals. For over 30 years, he's facilitated poetry workshops and readings in prisons, homeless shelters, juvenile facilities, public and private schools, community centers, migrant camps, universities, and bookstores. Luis 
is the founding editor of Tia Chucha Press, now in its 25th year, and co-founder of Tia Chucha Centro Cultural and Bookstore in the San Fernando Valley. His latest book is It Calls You Back, An Odyssey Through Love, Addiction, Revolutions, and Healing. In spring of 2016, Luis introduced a new Tia Chucha Press anthology called Serpent Poets Arising from the Cultural Quakes and Shifts of Los Angeles. That's a gorgeous opening poem. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Yeah, it packs in so much. Yeah. And your life has been so full of all these experiences. First of all, I wanted to just give a nod to the influence that I see in your work mm -hmm. of Neruda yeah. and um, in the lines they came for me and I yeah. never let go you mm -hmm. know that has that beautiful echo yeah. of Neruda in it in your last memoir it calls you back you begin the book in the same year d yeah. you discovered poetry in 73 yeah. and you just left the county jail yeah. for getting into an altercation with the law yeah. For what you say no true gangster would do, you tried to stop the beating of a young mm. Mexican woman by police. And there's so much history, and we, we can't get yeah. into everything, you know, your childhood and Watts and East L.A. and joining a gang at 12 and unimaginable uh, poverty. But you stepped in to stop this woman from being harmed, even mm. in the midst of your your drug-induced yeah. state. What do you think separated you from the other boys in the hood? And is there hope for every child born mm -hmm. into this life? Uh, well, I would say there was two things. One is I was uh, more angry than most people. And I, I don't mean like raging fool like a lot of my homies were. I was angry about injustice since I was very small. Okay. And, in, and I think when it became an issue of social injustice, it became very big. That was a compelling thing for me. There was a lot of social injustice. I knew there was racism. There was um, uh, class injustice. There was so much um, things that were wrong in our society. And that really got me thinking, I, I don't want to be in a gang. I'm, I'm not contributing to helping that situation. I'm actually making things worse. But that takes a consciousness to get to that point. But I was getting there. Even on drugs, even in the street, even one foot in the gang, one foot trying to get out, I was already being conscious. The other thing I say is hunger. I was hungry for something new. I was really hungry for something different. It's hard to leave heroin. It's hard to leave even the, the, the grip of the gang, La Vida Loca, The Crazy Life, Something compelling and powerful had to be inside of me, and one of them was my hunger for something new just to get away. I was suicidal, and my way of dying wasn't so much that I'm going to blow my brains out. It was more like maybe somebody will kill me in this world, you know, or, or I'll die of a heroin overdose or, you know, somebody will shoot me. It was that compelling hunger and the compelling anger for justice that I think helped me a lot. And you started that work early on, even before you yeah. got off drugs and yeah. uh, got into literature and poetry and everything, yeah. right? You, you were yeah. part of the walkouts yeah. at your, was it at your high school? Yeah, I took part in walkouts. I took part in the East LA blowouts. I don't know if you know how there was like twenty to 30,000 students in East LA that walked out. It was the largest walkout of students at the time in the history of this country for better education. And then mm -hmm. um, I got involved with the Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War, which right. was huge, and it actually impacted 
the peace movement that a lot of people don't give credit anymore. Mm-hmm. But this was the first community of color that really went all out against the war. And it helped change the whole idea about why are we at war. Uh, I was a prayer on murders road during that time because they wanted to get us for the murders of people that died. The police had actually killed. There was three people killed, including Ruben Salazar. And people don't know this part of it, that we were, about five of us were held in murders row, wow. waiting charges. You were next to Man- uh, yeah, Charles Manson, Charles right? Manson and... Um, but what happened? Did you see him? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. I had a cell right next to him. Uh, I saw him pretty regularly. But okay. the problem was, uh, somebody told me that um, the Chicano actors were taking so much video, and in those days it was film. Yeah. And uh, so much uh, it wasn't video, and so many um, uh, photographs that it worked in my favor because they only showed the cops beating up people and actually shooting people, including Ruben Salazar. There was nothing proving that I was involved in any of that. So eventually the cops just let us go. They, one night, middle of the night, they pulled us out, pulled me out. You're gone. I hadn't understood what happened, you know. But that's the way they were. That's right. the way yeah, the world was that I was in. And you took a stand for that. I mean, you saw this it woman, and yeah. it was like a step away from the gang life. It was an important step that... I guess if anybody's leaving that kind of life, you got to have those kind of big steps. This was my big step. And like I said, any gangster would have walked away. That's not right. their business. But me, it's like I couldn't. And it it forced me to have to confront my own um, addictions, my own uh, violent uh, <laughs> nature that I had, and also begin to look at what am I going to do? Am I going to keep doing that or am I going to go somewhere else? Right. I had to decide, make a decision for me. I had been mentored. People were trying to guide me, but... I, I had to make that decision. You had to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do a lot of work as poet laureate. Mm-hmm. Um, you sa- As you said, not just to bring poetry to the community, but to draw it out of the yeah. community. And you've been to hundreds of schools and libraries yeah. Yeah. and readings. And what, what are the kids looking for? What do they, what do they want? You know, is- language becomes important in a time when language is losing its momentum, its energy, and its ideas. Mm-hmm. I think we're, that's what's happening in our general culture. As you yeah, can tell absolutely. even from the presidential um, campaigns, how language has gone so low. And young people are so hungry. Again, hunger is important for a language that can speak their truths, that can give them a sense of meaning and purpose. And I'm finding that in the schools. When I work with them doing workshops, I find that they're so eager to express their stories, the stories of people they know, people who have died that nobody cares about, but also what's going on in the world. The young people, I found, are very um, uh, engaged. A lot of people don't know they are, and they're not helping them, but they very much are engaged with what's happening. Right. Uh, If you're just tuned in, you're listening to Poets Cafe. I'm here with Luis Rodriguez. We're honored to have him, a Los Angeles Second Poet Laureate. He's gone... um, over and above uh, the laureate ship, uh, I know you were asked to write poems for the city and yeah. things like that, but you've been to hundreds of uh, yeah. public events. You've done a lot for the children. Yeah. So they start to write their stories. Now, yeah. you as a poet, uh, you were drawn into it. You started to yeah. read poetry. So how do you get from wanting to express yourself to a love of language? You know, like how yeah. do you co- uh, cultivate that in the kids if they want to take that further, say? I think you have to introduce them to poets um, from Shakespeare all the way to Neruda, right. to Joy Harjo, to... Um, Emily Dickinson, to any mm-hmm. of the poets out there. I mean, there's many, especially American poets, are very powerful poets. Uh, and that's what helped me. I started reading poets. And then I would go to poetry events, and I could see the powerful 
um, way that language can move people, just like those three poets I, I read right. that poem from, it changed my life. That poetry can do this, yeah. words can do this. Yeah. And I think young people get that when I'm reading in front of them and or introducing them to these other poets. They feel that power. Yeah. Because, you know, in your memoir, you, you get a sense of this young person who feels powerless. Yeah. And so he hooks up with the gangs because yeah. they give him a sense exactly. of being able to have control in yeah. his life. And I think that's important, even if it's false power, but you, you're looking for yeah. places to belong, places where you feel a sense of power when the world pretty much keeps not just us as gang members, but the whole community becomes powerless. Right. How about if we hear another one of your poems? Yeah. Um, this one's an observation. My mother, with Rado Moody indigenous roots, born in Chihuahua, Mexico, acquired Alzheimer's disease in her 70s. A woman of stories forgetting her story. She passed on before she failed to remember me. In my saddened state, her death proved a blessing. A naturalized U.S. citizen who loved this country, although she never learned English, my mother died in a U.S. hospital with the American dream in her heart, if not in mind. I have a son, one of four children, whom teachers declared to be troubled, rambunctious, aren't they all? This was in kindergarten. These adults claimed he needed Ritalin for attention deficit disorder. My son had ADD, and my mother had AD. Yet, isn't this the state of our culture? Unable to focus, forced to forget. Death resolved my mother's affliction. A Native American focus program dealt with my sons. But America's afflictions are more untractable. With all our belief systems, certainties, moral compasses, we remain unsure, memoryless, disoriented. So true. And especially yeah. true uh, at this time and I appreciate yeah. um, so much about this poem and especially the fact of the labeling yeah. that happens a lot with kids you know ADD yeah, and you it's considered a deficit people are troubled by it but a lot of it I think has to do with our culture a lot Absolutely. of it is trying to force people into boxes kids in particular they're not allowed to be free to to be creative you know they're just being pushed into, you know, standardized testing, all these things. And even I think the elderly forgetting is yeah. because we forget them. In yeah. many ways, they're incorporating what, what we've done to them. Did your mom, uh, was she able to appreciate, you know, what happened, the metamorphosis of you? And i, I tell you a really quick funny on. story. It took her a long time. She was very saddened by me for all the things I went through. But uh, just before she died, a few years before she died, she came to the Chuchas Cultural Center in the Valley, and she had never been there. And it was named for my aunt. But she came in there, and she was very sick, and she was in a walker. She looked around, and then she started crying. And I told my mom, why are you crying? I was showing her everything we had, the art, the books, everything. She says, you know what, son? I think you're finally going to be okay. Oh. She finally <laughs> finally hit her that I was doing okay. It took her a long time. So uh, to me, that's kind of like great. If ever you have that bad relationship with your parents that you can reconcile in some form, that was my reconciliation Be with my mom. And she she obviously loved her children so much. My, you know, when you read woman. the memoir, always running. Yeah. I mean, to me, I loved my mom. I didn't care for my dad for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But my mom, I did. My mom was hard on us. She was frustrated. She beat us up. She yeah. yelled and screamed. I never saw it as abuse. I saw it more as a very frustrated woman in the world that didn't really care for women and 
diminish women, and she was one of those, and she tried, I think, with the minimal effort she could. She tried. She tried. I think in the end of the day, when you look back sometimes yeah. at your parents, you just got to go, they did the best they could with yeah. what they And believe it or not, I think knew. they instilled something in me, because in the gang, I saw terrible things. I would get close to those terrible things. I almost fell through the abyss, but I didn't go all the way. You know what I'm saying? Right. Something kept pulling me out, and I believe it or not, I think it was what my parents, particularly my mom, tried to instill in me. Somehow it echoed in my head. And she still somehow kept a space for you, yeah. even when you were in the garage. I know. <laughs> yeah, she, she was she mad that I came back because she didn't want me to come back, and I came back because I couldn't stand being in the streets very yeah, long. Yeah, of course. And she didn't want me back, but you know what? After a while, when I'm sitting in the garage, I yeah. cleared up the place. I made it my place. There was no running water, no heat. Uh, I didn't mind. Uh, it was a roof over my head. And every once in a while, my mom would just, is he okay? She walked looking out the window. Yeah. You know, she, so I think she cared. She always cared. Yeah. Um, in 2000, you were given the name, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, uh, Nai Nizgani from yeah. the Navajo yeah. Nation um, after, by a medicine man. Yeah. And his wife spiritually adopted your wife, Trini. Yeah. Um, so the name means what? Monster Slayer. Right? Yeah, and what they were telling me is that knowing my story, it's somebody who overcomes obstacles. And Monster Slayer is a very important Navajo story, but it really is about how we have the resolve, the everything we need to match up with the world challenges us. And what they were recognizing is that everything I've been through, the addiction, the alcoholism, the gangs, uh, all my situations with wives and girlfriends mm -hmm. and my son uh, going to prison, all yeah. these things, that I still overcame them, that I still found a way out. And yes. So I'm a monster slayer in that you sense. You are. <laughs> and so the monsters being those big, terrible obstacles we all face. And I hope right. that that encourages people. Yes. That no matter how hard it is, and I'm blessed compared to others, but no matter what it is, you can find the fortitude Mm -hmm. You can find the strength through everything, particularly people who are highly diminished, like women, like people of color, like uh, working class people who are given no value. They still got to find the value inside of themselves so they can get strong enough and to overcome some of these things. And they have to find it from whatever source it is. Yeah. I mean, how how did the Native American uh, or the Navajo people yeah. help you? I mean, were you deeply connected to their yeah. cultures, to their Well, ceremonies. you know, my mother, as I mentioned in the poem, she's a Radamudi from Southern Chihuahua, mm -hmm. and she wasn't raised that way, but she always made it a point to tell us that we were Native. Um, and I cleave to it. I actually have Spanish, and I have all kinds of other things. Right. I have some African. I have, all, uh, I have the world, world in me. I found yes, out I did that. Ancestry <laughs> DNA have the world. But uh -huh. my, the Native became where I wanted to find my spirituality. And when I was drinking... I needed to find spirituality, and I couldn't find it, believe it or not, in the existing um, religious spiritual past other than I went to my native. Right. And that was the biggest way that I was able to overcome alcoholism. And finally, I've been sober now for 23 years. That's great. I go through the sweat lodges. I work with, yeah, I work with the elders in Navajo yeah. land, mostly them. But there's other uh, tribal peoples that have been very helpful over the years for my sobriety and everything. I think it's interesting now with how everything sort of culminated despite yeah. what's going on politically at Standing Rock. 
Yeah, it's so crucial what's happening in Standing Rock. Uh, we've had people from Tia Chuchas. A lot of people have gone there. Have they? Okay. We're going to do presentations for people that, oh, are, that have been there. I have not had a chance to go. My son, who's very active. I was active, thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, my son, yeah. who's very active. My oldest son, who's very active in dance, the Aztec dance, and he's very active in the community. He wants me and him to go. And hopefully, maybe we can come back from Honduras. Okay. I'm going to Honduras in the next uh, two weeks. Uh, we might, I might end up there. But I just hope the struggle has been resolved by then, but obviously it's going to be a long, protracted struggle. Yeah, the way I mean, it going. seems to be such a microcosm for what's going on right now. Everything you know, historical, not just but his also where we're at in the world, the climate. Racially. Everything is being pointed there, and yet it's, the media is not really touching it as much as it should. I think it's the most important battle going on in our country today. If you're just tuning in, we're with the wonderful Luis Rodriguez, uh, second poet laureate of Los Angeles, who is here with us today at Poets Cafe sharing his story and his poems. Um, you've done so much for the community. So you're going to Honduras and you're going to be... Yeah, so Honduras, I'm going there? to be working with orphaned uh, girls. My wife is going with me. We'll have spent a whole month there teaching poetry. We're also going to publish their work uh, through Tia Chucha Press in a year from now. Uh, so to me, that's a very important part of the work that I do. I'm also teaching at Lancaster Prison, an hour away from my house, for 30 weeks. We're there at two maximum security yards teaching writing to um, lifers and you know other people who normally wouldn't be given time of day, but I've been doing this work for more than 35 years, and I, it's a I work I love, work with those so-called marginalized communities that nobody hears from, but they're important, and they're human beings, and they have much to say. They are important, and they're important for a lot of reasons, especially for rehabilitation, because uh -huh. as we know, you know, there's this revolving door, yeah. and uh, there's a lot of uh, difficulty happening with the prison yeah. community. And so you come in there and you give these guys, they really want a sense of themselves. Yeah, back, and people say, they? well, why do I work with people who are like life sentences? I get they're all worth it. Right. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. I've, I've been gone like five weeks already. They do an amazing work. They are great writers, great thinking. And I say good writing is always a connected to good thinking, mm -hmm. so great thinking. So thinking is very powerful for them. They think through very much their lives, what they've been through, what, they, what they've seen, and they want to put it in words. Sometimes, not just in poetry, but fiction, science fiction. It, it's interesting, mysteries, all kinds of things, genres that they're working in now. That's great. Uh, let's take another look at your next poem, which deals with your children. Yeah, two of my, two of my boys. Um, this is... Moonlight to Water. Moonlight to Water, from my youngest sons, Ruben and Luis. Ruben recalled the day I brought Mama and his baby brother home when he was six. In the backseat of the car, he said, was an Asian-looking child, hair sticking straight up on his head. Chito, short for Luisito, looked this way because he's part Raramuri and Huichol, but mostly all universe. Ruben must have wondered about the galaxy of stars, bird songs, and stories that had been dreamt to fashion such a boy. When Chito arrived, I'm sure Ruben knew his world would never be the same. Until then, Ruben had been our only child. To mom and dad, he was a screech of car brakes, a sigh to a bad joke, the glove to our ball, and now this, a bewildered boy gazing at a sweet-faced earth child wrapped in a light blue blanket. I asked Ruben what he thought about his brother. Eyes gleaming with a six-year-old's clarity, he answered, Oh, I already knew him. 
I saw Chito when I was in Mama's stomach. I gave Ruben a look I often offered in reply to his amazing observations. Somehow, though, the statement rang true. His younger brother was in the wings, preparing to part the next one, patiently abiding his turn. As they grew older, Chito followed his brother's every move, entering wide-eyed into Ruben's dense sphere, sharing the same music, games, imaginings. Ruben never hurt or exploited him, as older brothers often do. The boys connected from the start, like hummingbird to flower, like breath to poems, like moonlight to water, brothers since the womb. Beautiful. I love this poem. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it means a lot. You know, it's like poetry can do so much, and I'm very political, but to me, it's also knowing how to be personal about things that are meaningful. Right. Uh, political and personal are really combined. I don't really separate them. So this is a political poem about fatherhood, the loving your children, how true children can love each other, mm-hmm. how we're examples of how children can be together. I grew up in a household in which everybody fought. I'm sure you might have, others might have. People were fighting. I don't know why we, we didn't did. kill each other. I was the, the one with my hands on my ears. Yeah, you can, yeah. Stop it. I know. <laughs> and it's really weird how families are like that. And I, I, I totally get it. Yeah. But here were these two boys that they they wouldn't fight. They loved each other. And it's like, wow, what an amazing. I had to write a poem about just that. And I know the quality we had to do with their mom and me and the way we took care of them, all that. But of course. Still, it's beautiful. Yeah. And it shows you, you know, the, the tender side of you this, and the spiritual side. You, you need to draw on those. Yeah, you absolutely. Do, right? And, yeah. and And amazing, you know. He, I saw Cheeto when I was in Mama's stomach. Yeah. Yeah, you got to listen to say kids. Stuff yeah, like that. you know it's very beautiful because I tell people, especially three or four year olds, are the most metaphoric language you hear. Wow. Listen to them; they're actually innately poetic. Yes, and they schools are. take that away from them. Yeah. That's true, and at the very least, they don't uh, cultivate yeah, exactly. those parts of them. Yeah. You know, you know, we know how it is to fight trying to get the arts programs and things right. going. But yeah. you've done a lot to awaken that in, in the city. Yeah. What do you think, you know, you want to continue to do? Well, I'm going to keep doing what I was doing because, you know, I was actually doing this before I was Polaroid. I just really hit it hard. Uh, but I'm going to keep going to schools, going to as many events and gatherings and conferences as I can. Libraries, mm-hmm. great the libraries. I, I hope that we'll have a new Polaroid soon. Uh, at least before the year's over, so we, I can help that po- poet laureate, um, whatever that person is going to do. Because each poet laureate, I think, should make it their own. Right. I, I set a high bar. Somebody you said, set a high I bar. Did, but I, I did. I'd say, look at let each poet create it, make it their own. But one thing I think they should do is get out in the community. Whatever you do, don't just sit on your laurels somewhere and uh, I'm poet laureate. Get out there to the people. Do the work. Yeah. You have a great poem um, that we're going to finish with. And this is the, one of the poems I wrote for L.A. I have more than one, but this is my big one. Love poem to Los Angeles. To say I love Los Angeles is to say I love its shadows and night lights, its meandering streets, the stretch of sunset-colored beaches. It's to say I love the squawking wild parrots, the palm trees that fail to topple in robust winds, that within a half hour of L.A. center, you can convert and snow deserts, mountains, beaches. This is a multi-layered city, unceremoniously built on hills, valleys, ravines. Flying into Burbank Airport in the day, you observe gradations of trees and earth. A city seems to be an afterthought. 
skyscrapers popping up from the greenery guarded by the mighty San Gabriels. Layers of history reach deep, run red, scarring the soul of the city, a land where Chinese were lynched, Mexican resistant fighters hounded, workers and immigrants exploited, Japanese removed to concentration camps, blacks forced from farmlands in the south, then segregated, diminished. Here also are blessed native lands where first people like the Tataviam and Tongva bonded with nature's gifts, people of peace, deep statured, loving hands. Yet for all my love, I also poured the poison time, starting with Spanish settlers, the missions where 80% of natives who lived and worked in them died to the ruthless murder of Indians during and after the gold rush, the worst slaughter of tribes in the country. From all manner of uprisings, a city of acceptance began to emerge. This is riot city after all. More civil disturbances in Los Angeles in the past hundred years than any other city. To truly love L.A., you have to see it with different eyes, askew perhaps, beyond the fantasy-induced Hollywood spectacles. L.A. is also known for the most violent street gangs, the largest skid row, the greatest number of poor. Yet, I loved L.A. even during heroin-induced nods or running down rain-soaked alleys or getting shot at, even when I slept in abandoned cars alongside the concrete river and during all-night movie showings in downtown Art Deco theaters. The city beckoned as I tried to escape the prison-like grip of its shallowness, sun-soaked image, suburban quiet, all disarming, hiding the murderous heart that can beat at its center. L.A. is also lovers' embraces, the most magnificent lies, the largest commercial ports, graveyard ships, poetry readings, murals, low-riding culture, skateboarding, a sound that hybridized black Mexican as well as Asian and white migrant cultures. You wouldn't have musicians like Richie Valens, The Doors, War, Los Lobos, Charles Wright and the Watts, 103rd Street Rhythm Band, Hiroshima, Motley Crue, N.W.A., or Quetzal without Los Angeles. Or John Fante, Chester Himes, Charles Bukowski, Maricela Norte, and Wanda Coleman as its jester poets. I love L.A. I can't forget its smells. I love to make love in L.A., it's a great city, a city without a handle, the world's most mixed metropolis of intolerance and divisions. How I love it, how I hate it. Zoot suit riots, can't stay away, city of hunger, city of angers, Ruben Salazar, Rodney Keene, I like to kick its face in. Bone city, dried blood on walls, wildfires, taunting dove whales, car fumes and oil derricks, water thievery with every industry possible, and still a one-industry town lined by those majestic palm trees and like its people with solid roots, supple trunks, resilient. Perfect. Thank you so Thank much you so for much. coming to our show. My this pleasure. is host Lois P. Jones, and our guest has been Los Angeles Poet Laureate Luis Rodriguez. Many thanks to our producer, Marlena Bond. Look for us on the Poets Cafe fan page on Facebook. You've been listening to Poets Cafe on Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond.